This week on The Zone of Truth, Griff and I talk about the Pathfinder 2E Dark Archive playtest, deconstruct the first foray into the neutral interlude, and of course, answer some listener questions. I'm your host, Steve, in the studio with your GM and my co-host, Griffin. Roll a will save. You're in the zone of truth. And we're back. Oh, yeah. Just you and me this time. That's right. You know, we got the 69th historic episode behind us. And now we're back to the way things should be. Back to cruising. Putting on cruise control. We are punching in and punching out. episode 420. And then back on it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, we're back on our bullshit. For, God, if this show goes to 420, that's... You'll be real old by then. You'll be like 40. <laughs> Two 40-year-olds chilling. Still talking about, still, still drinking three drinks per episode. Still talking about Malort and White Castle. And what you guys think of the, the recent Pathfinder 4E playtest? Oh, it was pretty good. Huh? <laughs> yeah, I mean. You think that's how you're going to talk at 40? Oh, yeah. The years of smoking <laughs> have yeah. killed my lungs. That's my suggestion for people this week. Uh, start smoking because I think I might try it, you know. Just so you can sound like that at 40. Yeah, I think this episode comes out after I turn 29, so it's like, it's it's about time for me to pick up a new destructive habit. Yeah, you certainly don't have enough of those. Mm-hmm. All right, so what are you drinking tonight, Griff? And speaking of destructive habits... Uh, I'm drinking a Bang Mix. They're the Bang Hard Seltzers, and I'm drinking a Strawberry Blast. It's very good. Those are top-tier seltzers. I think they're four for four in that pack. They're fantastic. So... To find these today, the grocery store has like all of their seltzers and all of their drinks in one aisle, refrigerated, and then they have kind of like the bigger packs sitting in the middle, stacked. I eagle-eyed these. These were hidden, not in the drink aisle, but rather to the side of a shelf of chips mm-hmm. next to the employee door. And they still had a little tag with price. But they were clearly pushed completely out of view, I think, by some employee that wanted to keep them safe. Yeah. At at the end of the shift, maybe buy out the rest of the stock. I mean, there were, I want to say, like eight cases left. And and you bought like seven of them. I'm Just one. We just got the one. But I couldn't believe how difficult they were to find. Somebody was clearly hiding these. They're a hot commodity. They truly are. Like I said, top tier seltzers, weirdly so. I wouldn't have thought so, but... Hey, you know what? After we had that banging bros segment with the dice crisis, I have been on the bang energy drinks. Yeah. I've been drinking them before we work out here. Um, I drink them before I work out now outside of here. Um, they're good. Yeah. I like them. Yeah, they're good and their flavors are really good. And I think that translates pretty cleanly to their seltzers, although their seltzers don't have caffeine, but yeah, which is. Probably for the best. Probably for the best. Just sprinkle a little caffeine powder in there if you want, yeah. the, if you want the full effect. Life hack. Life hack. <laughs> All <laughs> what right. are you drinking? As for me, I'm drinking a beer from Two Brothers. It's called Prairie Path. I actually don't know. Uh, what kind of beer is it? Does it say? Prairie golden Path. Ale. Golden Ale. Golden oh, Ale. That's what, that's what we're dealing with. Can I try a sip of that? Mm-hmm. That's a Golden Ale. Well, that's good. That's tasty. Yeah. Not too bad. So, Griffin, what you been into lately? 
Oh man, we've been, uh, I think we're almost done Hunter Hunter. I know I've been talking about this probably mm-hmm. for the past three Zone of Truths, but we're deep into season five, I think, and I think it ends there. Might end at five or six. Sure. Uh, it's been really good. I've really been enjoying it. We, um, I'm currently downloading, waiting to play the Diablo 2 Remastered, uh, because that was maybe my favorite game growing up. Yeah, so we're expecting like a 20-minute episode today. Yeah, it's going to go quick. I'm going to be downstairs playing that. But I haven't actually gotten a chance to play it. I actually started playing Persona 5, mm-hmm. and oh my god, dude. Yeah? Have you played the Persona games? I never have. Dude, you have to play this. So Persona 5, to me, feels like playing an anime. Really? The story is great. The animations are super smooth, and it's, it's like a turn-based kind of... It's an RPG. It's like a turn-based RPG. Okay. But the characters are really strong. Like, you start as a character that had to uh, transfer high schools because he assaulted a dude that was basically trying to uh, abduct a woman into his car. Mm -hmm. And so the dude sued him, and he got charges pressed against him and couldn't stay at his, like, prep school. So another school in Japan had to, like they had to make a deal to get him in so that he could finish high school. Okay. And then this shit starts happening in Tokyo where it, I think it's I think it's Tokyo where the story takes place, but like train conductors start having like psychosis and like crashing subway trains and shit and it's Jesus like Christ. so there's some like crazy shit happening and then you start figuring out like there's this whole kind of upside down shadow world and your character is able to access it. Do you have to play any of the preceding games? I don't think so. I, okay. I haven't. Okay. I haven't, and I've been enjoying it. Uh, I think there's, like, tidbits from the preceding games, but uh, realistically, it stands alone. Yeah, because as you said, it feels like you're playing an anime. I immediately pulled out my phone and started Googling if it was on Xbox. And it looks like it is. So I might give that a whirl. Yeah, I think it's pretty... It was originally just on, I think, PlayStation and now it's like on the Switch and on Xbox and everything. It's not a new game. Like okay. Persona 5 Complete Edition I think came out a year and a half ago maybe. But man, I, I slept on it for a while and I knew I needed to start playing it and sure. I've really been enjoying it. Alright, because I'll be looking for something soon. As far as my video game consumption has gone, I have been playing Hades, people know that, and I have gotten to the final boss probably five or six times. Ooh. Like I've that's I'm pretty far. I'm yeah, there. You're getting there. I am there. I just need to push it across the finish line. Nice. So when I do, I'll be looking for something new. Yeah, I think this is one of those games that is really great on like a chill day when you normally would watch like anime or something mm-hmm. to play because it's pretty much like that. Like you have pretty substantial like five, ten minute story chunk segments between every 30 minutes of gameplay. So it, it's pretty well dispersed. Nice. That sounds like a lot of fun. Anything else going on in your life you want to let people know about? No, I think that's about it. Sweet. Well, as for me, I just got done with a little short-run TV show. It's called The North Water. Episode 1 is available for Amazon Prime if you've got that subscription, and the rest of them you have to go somewhere else to find them. But it is fantastic. Every once in a while, AMC will do these insanely expensive looking historical like timepiece show. Dude, they do that beyond like historical time. I think AMC did the like eight hour 
version of The Stand, the Stephen King book. Oh, I thought that, I think, I thought I, that was I think, HBO. I'm pretty sure that's AMC. That's oh, maybe it's maybe. Yeah, it might be AMC and like on HBO Max yeah. or whatever. But yeah, they just throw wild amounts of money at stuff like this. So th- for those of you who aren't familiar, it is very reminiscent of season one of The Terror, which again was another AMC thing that looked insanely expensive. But basically, it's the story of this surgeon in, I think it's the 1800s, and he joins a whaling expedition up in the Arctic Circle. And there are some bad things going on in the background, like the captain is going to purposefully scuttle the ship to get an insurance payout. And there are some also really terrible characters on the ship. So it's this guy that you're following along and he can't trust anybody on the vessel. And I wouldn't call it horror by any stretch of the imagination, but it is some of the most tense television I've watched in a very long time. It is so good. It's fantastic. It has Colin Farrell playing potentially the darkest role he has ever played. Like I said, it looks gorgeous. I think it's it's based off of a book and it's just fantastic. I can't speak highly enough of this movie. Uh, I called it a movie, but it because it, it sure as hell feels like one. Yeah. But it's a tight five hours. Like if you pace that out. Oh, it's, it's only like a five episode thing. Yep. Okay. Usually they do like an eight episode stretch. I feel like like they do mm-hmm. like they do those things in almost like one season of TV. That's how right? like the terror was. Yeah. yeah. And it sounds like the stand was the same way. But in episode two, they do the whaling of the whaling expedition. And it is wild to watch. Oh, I believe that. Yeah, yeah. it's really good. So highly suggest that I'm going to throw out a couple music recommendations out here for folks. So I've been really getting into motionless and white lately. I had seen these guys live a few years ago and they put on a really good show, but I never really tried to get into the music. And recently I've just been diving in head first. It's metalcore with a little bit of like a goth slant for some stuff, but then they also have some like pretty hard hitting emotional stuff too. So I think it's really tight. Check it out. And then a local favorite of mine from back home in Chicago, a band called Real Friends. I saw them when they released their second EP. It was in a bowling alley. I saw that show in high school and they've gotten really big and they just put out a new EP called Torn in Two. They have a new singer, which sometimes doesn't work, but in this case really, really does. It is grade a pop punk there's a song on there called teeth that is fabulous everybody check it out it's so good dude speaking of goth music we had gone to a uh, music festival together Mm -hmm. and in the week after just to be safe i was working out solo i told uh you know everybody else that normally joins to by uh, the way we saw motionless and white at that show that's yeah we did yeah that's 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 why i I figured yeah yeah. um but i've been working out solo and Mm -hmm. I decided because it was just me, I would try and like max out all of my lifts. Mm-hmm. And I had, li- I was to max out all of my lifts. I listened to typo negative the entire oh. week. Nice. <laughs> In the gym, just typo negative, fucking deadlifting 535 pounds. Dear God. It was great. It it's one of my favorite solo working out experiences, just getting to, you know, that's one of the perks that I don't actually use most of the time is like playing what I wanted to play. Because mm-hmm. usually it's like a group and I end up playing Bogwitch Energy playlists. Because, you know, 
everybody can get behind that. Yeah, everybody can get it's a crowd pleaser. You know, Rhiannon, uh, mm-hmm. among other classics. Yep, absolutely. But uh, yeah, it was, it was great. You play what you want. You max out your workout. Well done, man. That's a fucking lot of weight, by the way. How much mileage do you have left on the bar to fill up? Uh, it is. Uh, I need to. I need to move some of my bumper plates to metal plates because mm-hmm. it's full. Yeah, like the, and the bumper plates have like the rubber on them or whatever. Yeah. So the um, the clips were on by about an inch, so they yeah. weren't. It wasn't even like full clip. I was just like, I hope this will stay on. Jesus. Um, but that's again, that's because most of my plates are extra thick because they're the bumper plates. Mm-hmm. What number are you shooting for? So I want to be at. Uh, 1,500 between bench, deadlift, and squat, and currently I'm at 1,350. So I have 150 pounds to go. But not that far away. I mean, you're 80-ish percent of the way there? Yeah, not that math. far. Yeah, Because remember, we I don't know if you were here, we did stakes when I broke 1,000. Uh, yeah, I was here for that. Yeah. I was, yeah. We did stakes when I broke 1,000 between the three. I might not have been there for the actual break, but I was there for the stakes. I was there for when I counted. <laughs> there when we needed you. Yep. All right. So lots of good stuff going on in our lives. But let's talk about what people actually came to this show for. So there is a new Pathfinder 2E playtest out there. Oh, it is a playtest for a book coming out called The Dark Archive. So for those of you who are unfamiliar or haven't been on the internet, here's what The Dark Archive is. It's an upcoming source book detailing cryptid monsters, apocryphal divine magic, and time-bending temporal anomalies. Anonymies? Yes. Anomalies. Uh, uh, my notes say anonymies. Okay, they're anonymous. <laughs> Additionally, there are dossiers in the book which seem to serve as mini-adventures, and there are two brand new classes which are being playtested currently through October 29th, 2021. Dark Archive is scheduled to release next year at Gen Con. So... It's not quite a Milwaukee Expanse type book, it seems like, which was predominantly lore. But I also don't feel that it's one of the like advanced players guides type of books, which is pure mechanics. I think it's this like a is, combo of both. This is like what they're doing with their bestiaries now. Mm-hmm. So with the bestiaries, they've done one, two, and three, and now they're moving to stuff like Book of the Dead that is much more focused, and they have said is going to have like. A bunch of undead monsters, but also a bunch of lore on Geb and like mm-hmm. some, you know, some write-ups from scholars and stuff to make it feel more in-world. Yeah. I think they're doing the equivalent with the Dark Archive for stuff like the Advanced Player's Guide. Like this is like a player companion book, but they're wrapping it up in a package that is more lore forward, which I think is a really cool decision. And I think we have everything to make a pretty complete system right now with three bestiaries, a core book and advanced player's guide like some other like secrets of magic and that kind of stuff really flushes out a pretty complete system and now it's really cool that they're just pivoting into more lore focused books that still give you content to play with but are fleshing out galarian i think it's a good decision when you have a you know ip world as well which i think was kind of the summary thesis of when we got done reviewing the Milwaukee Expanse was like, we love the lore. This is so freaking good, but we want to see the mechanics taken further. Mm-hmm. And that's what, that kind of appears to be what they're doing with this book, yep. which is good. So let me get your overall thoughts right now before we dive into the two characters, or rather the classes that are getting playtested, Griffin. 
What do you think right now? What, what do you think of these classes? I absolutely love them. Mm-hmm. I think um, I think there will be some changes to both yeah. post-play tests, and we can kind of talk about what I think maybe those would be. But right now, I think they both suit the power fantasy of the kind of character that is described as being one of those classes. Mm-hmm. You know, I love the psychic in its iteration here a lot more than I liked the psychic in first edition. I think I'm on the record saying that that's like one of my least favorite classes. Did people like the psychic in first edition? I feel like I don't see it get any love anywhere. It just feels very much like a sorcerer with a couple of different spells and a lot less spells. And then it like, it has some, like instead of a really good bloodline, it Mm -hmm. gets a really shitty like emotional connection or something that really doesn't do a ton. And in exchange, you get like a good casting method. Like you, psychic casting is really yeah. powerful. But here, I mean, this is like this is a different flavor on a caster. It feels like. Well, well, how about this? Let's just jump into this because I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to play a psychic. It, I mean, obviously, some things are probably going to change because mm-hmm. of the play test. But I love this play test class. It's so cool. I think. It does things that I want classes in 2E to do. So let's just talk about it. So there's a little bit of a flavor description that I want to give. This is straight from the playtest itself. So the psychic is for players who want to unleash the power of their mind. A spontaneous occult spellcaster whose magic comes from the intersection of their conscious and subconscious mind. Psychics can move objects, read thoughts, or glimpse distant sights. And they have a wide selection of focused cantrips as well as special ways to amplify them. It is an uncommon class. Mm-hmm. It has that as a trait. And it is described as having spellcasting itself that is less well-known or defined than other common traditions. Those are arcane, primal, occult, divine. They pin this class down as being prevalent in regions like Vudra, Rahadum, and places where connections to other worlds are present. So I think they may call out like Kionin for having Elfgate connections and mm-hmm. stuff. So this isn't a class that you'll see in every party because it has that uncommon descriptor, but I really like it. Yeah. So just to get into some of the mechanics of the class itself, when you are building your psychic, you're going to choose a subconscious type of mind. So that's either intelligence or charisma based. And you're a spontaneous caster, so you have your spell slots instead of having a prepared list of spells every day. So this is one of the things that I'm really hoping they change a little bit. I would love a spontaneous spell caster that gets to pick their casting stat out of all of the mental stats. So right now they have charisma or intelligence. They should add a wisdom one. What's your logic behind that? So I think a lot of praise for the second edition Sorcerer is the fact that you get to pick any casting tradition. Mm -hmm. And I think this is an opportunity to say I'm an occult caster, but I get to pick my key stats. So I really get to flavor like a lot of times it's like I have the sexy sorcerer, right? But you could you could actually, you know, you could be an analytical psychic or you could be like an empath with wisdom or with charisma. You could be that like that strong force of personality. Mm -hmm. And I think like the charisma one is maybe like the best at like persuading people and using like their psychic power to manipulate and almost use like the enchantment school. Uh, But maybe the intelligence one is more like, 
raw power like you know you can you're using like telekinesis and the will one is more like intuition or wisdom is more like I guess I would say like social intelligence sure. a little bit yeah. and so like I feel like that one might be foresight or empathic abilities I'm certainly not against that I always am on the side of wanting more choices than I just think that would be very unique to have like one spellcaster that could be any mental stat mm-hmm. it would be pretty cool there are a lot of charisma casters in 2e right now yeah there are do we need more not really. No, I didn't think so. <laughs> we've got Bard. We've got uh, Sorcerer. We've got your Oracle. We've got this. There are plenty of other Charisma classes that aren't casters as yeah, well. Yeah, you have so. Swashbucklers want Charisma. Mm-hmm. Some Rogues want Charisma. Champions want Charisma. And you got plenty of Intelligence, too, like Witches and Wizards. And then your Wisdom is Cleric. Yeah. Druid, maybe, right? Druid, yeah. yeah. Cleric and Druid. But that's it. Yeah. It's a much shorter list. And this is a much different flavor than a Cleric or Druid, because it's actually spontaneous. So let's get into it. What I really like about this class, or what we've seen of this class so far in the playtest, is I'm going to borrow some language from some folks in our Discord. This is basically like the master of cantrips, Mm -hmm. which cantrips are already well done in 2e. Everybody knows that I like how cantrips are done in 2e. The way that they scale, they prevent your wizard from having to walk around for five levels with a crossbow. Like It's cool to have cantrips. It's great. And this really takes that mechanic and pushes it. So in addition to the regular cantrips you get when you're creating this character, you also get three psi cantrips, two of which are basic occult cantrips, and the third of which is like a unique new cantrip from this book and these cantrips can be amplified using focus points in unique and interesting ways so this is a somewhat focus point based class however they have mechanics for regaining extra focus points and there are certain situations where you can spam using your focus points. Yeah, you get two focus points, and if you use them strictly for amps, which is the only way you can use them as a psychic right mm-hmm. now, unless you take a an archetype or a dedication, you can recover the two at level one. That's so which good. Which is crazy because you, it feels really strong to be able to use something like a focus point twice in a combat, every combat. Mm-hmm. And even building on top of that, these old cantrips that you thought you knew can be used in new and interesting ways. So, for example, if you take the conscious mind that's called Infinite Eye, you can use Detect Magic. Okay, cool. Detect Magic is a basic cantrip that everybody knows how it works in 2E. However, you can amp it up, and when you use Detect Magic in like a combat situation you get a bonus to saves against magic. You take these old cantrips and you put new spins on them if you use a focus point. I particularly, I love that. That's I, so cool. I particularly love the way they've done the cantrips that you would never use in combat. They put one yeah. in each conscious mind. So mm-hmm. I think I actually built a psychic. I built a, um, just for a level one like bounty, I built an intelligence psychic that used the... Um, I think it's called like the far reach conscious mind. Sure. 
Ah, it's the it's the distant grasp. I did the distant grasp, and for instance, with that one, Mage Hand is one of its special Psy Amp. But Griffin, you would never use Mage Amp in combat. Uh, almost never, but in in this circumstance, it actually allows you to like actually grab objects from like your your mm-hmm. allies, and and you can use thievery at a range by amping it, and so it actually is useful in combat. And it's the same with with every one of the conscious minds. They take one of those cantrips and they make it something that you could actually use in combat, which is really fun. Yeah, it's really clever, very cool. So that's something that I really, really love about this playtest class. Let's talk about something that I don't quite love as much. It spell progression. <laughs> well, that for sure. The class seems to be hampered a little bit by the number of spells that it gets very low even though it is a spontaneous caster, so it has that... You have slots that you can basically cast any way that you want to, if you know the right spells, but those slots seem to be very low. The other thing that kind of bums me out a little bit is this power that they get called Unleashing the Psyche, which on paper sounds pretty cool in that as you're building through a combat, you can turn on something and your attacks or your spells or your defenses or whatever get augmented in a new way as you get into this different level of psychic being almost you un- you it's like opening your third eye or whatever thank you perfect however it seems that most of those different types of unleashing that psyche have to be done in the third or later round of combat yeah and i mean let's be real how often does that happen Maybe you'll get to three rounds of combat in a regular combat, but that doesn't seem like it's going to It doesn't feel like often. it's going to come up a ton. Yeah. The, the thing I will say is that for round one and two, you can certainly be spamming your uh, amped cantrips, which mm-hmm. is pretty cool. But yeah, third round of combat might be a little too far. I think we'll have to see what the results of the playtests are for that piece because right. it happens. I mean, don't get me wrong. And if the intent for this is that this Unleash the Psyche is truly only for, like, boss combats or, like, mass combats with a ton of enemies, then I get it. Then it's going to work as intended. But in my experience, we had a combat that lasted three rounds. Sure. And I thought about Unleashing Psyche, and at level one, it does, like, nothing for you. Yeah. It adds one damage to your cantrips and reduces your AC by two. Dope. So... In essence, and I think it will scale better as you level up, but Mm -hmm. in essence, part of the feats for a psychic are to make that unleash the psyche better. And in my opinion, they're kind of a waste of a feat. It's a feat that you get to use maybe one out of three combats or something. And even when you do, there was a... I, I was looking at one of the particular feats. Your unleash psyche is more attuned to resisting damage or something. I don't remember the name of the feat, but basically... The first round of combat, you have to cast some sort of defensive spell. And then the second round of combat, you also have to cast some sort of defensive spell. And then you can use that specific thing. So in my mind, that's a really difficult sell because you're pigeonholing your character. And you're trying to build to this thing that Mm -hmm. you don't really have control over 90% of getting to that point. Yeah, you don't know how the combat's going to shake out. In round two, you it may make more sense to debuff or do something else. And there's an argument to be made. Well, Steve, you're not thinking far enough ahead in the combat. Maybe it's worth sucking up around to get to that Unleashed Psyche part. But 
the benefits did not outweigh the cost in my mind for something like that. So I think a way around this, and I, I don't know how Paizo would change this, but just my thoughts on it are because you get a benefit and a detriment mm-hmm. for going into this state, I think it should be a three-action thing to enter unconscious mind. So whenever oh, sure. in combat you feel like you want to do that, mm-hmm. you spend a turn and you enter unconscious mind. I like that. I like that a lot better than and the I way think it that's is like, right now. That's like, hey, if I want to start, if I want to go in guns blazing, I can spend my first turn to do this. Yep. If the combat is getting really bad, I can go into this state to start blasting, or I don't have to use it, and I don't have to feel bad about that because like, I didn't spend a turn yeah. going into it. I think that's better than saying, okay, you have to endure three rounds of combat before you can do this. I agree with that. I don't want to belabor that point too much because there's still a ton that we need to talk about today. Was there anything else about the class that really stood out to you as exciting or cool? Uh, Some of the feats are really great. And I like some of the feat-based amps because Mm -hmm. then they make each conscious mind really does a good job of flavoring a couple of cantrips with an amp that makes them cool. But some of the amps that you can apply later, like can just apply to other cantrips that are your psychic cantrips. So if you take like a, I don't know, a cult uh, cantrip uh, probably isn't like an electric arc, but you could like cast. Yeah. Let's say for the, the sake of the argument, but you could, you could apply an amp to that instead or there's like a fire starter one that makes all your cantrips do fire damage. It makes you like a pyrokineticist or something. It's really cool. Uh, so there's some really flavorful feats in here. And I think a lot of pretty strong feats in here. I just don't like that about a quarter of the feats are tied to this unconscious mind thing, which I don't think is fleshed out the right way. Tune that up. And this class is a plus material. I think it rocks. I think yeah, being, so a, being a master of focus points Mm-hmm. and cantrips is something that has not been done by any class and is completely unique yeah. and will be very fun. When we were hypothesizing a while ago about what new classes we would like to see in Pathfinder 2nd Edition, I wouldn't have chosen the Psychic, but I like the way that it plays out because what I said then was that I wanted to see a class that takes a cool new 2nd Edition mechanic like the three action economy or something, and then really capitalizes on it. And this does exactly that. It takes cantrips, which I love in second edition, and really makes them cool and unique. And focus points too. Uh, well, I don't like focus points, but that's a discussion for another yeah, time. Yeah, but focus points are a really good way of avoiding the first edition trap where every class had like a weird pool of something. Like yes. a key pool or an arcane point pool or like psychics had some kind of pool, like a phrenic pool or something. I certainly do not disagree with that. I think in theory, they're really, really cool. My problem is the resting and regaining them thing. Which yeah, is, which it I, is a discussion I, for another time. Which I think but, psychic does a good job yes. of like at level one, you can regain two as long as you use them on amping cantrips yes i i'm here for that and that's why i like this because i think it takes something that i'm not in love with in second edition and tunes it up to a point that i really like so we do need to keep moving the other class that is going to be part of the dark archive is the thaumaturge i think i'm pronouncing that correctly i believe so too and like you said you're definitely going to play a psychic this is a class i'm definitely going to play we should do these together sometime this is absolutely my style of play. All right. We'll tell you what. How about I 
hit him with the flavor description. And then do you want to kick this one off? Yeah, that's fine. Cool. So a thaumaturge is for the player who wants to know every rumor and always have the right charm or scrap of lore for the job. Thaumaturges wield weapons, mystic implements, and the unique ability to recognize and capitalize on enemy weaknesses. And they have a number of supernatural tricks they can use in their fight against their stranger. Again, this is a very solid class. Tell me about it, Griff. Yeah, well, the first thing I want to mention is actually the iconic. The iconic Mios is really cool. They're the first non-binary iconic in Pathfinder. And just... My God, the art Wayne Reynolds did for Mios is really sick. I would say that he's got a Griffin Norman-esque figure. <laughs> With about a million different trinkets on him. You could cosplay that pretty well. Like I probably you, could if, if, I, your if hair I grew again, my hair back up. Straighten it out, and you're about as wide. This, er, <laughs> this person's fucking built. A wide wide <laughs> yes. person, yeah. So, Thaumaturge, in my head, just before we get into it, is really the crux of the Pathfinder First Edition Occultists and the Pathfinder First Edition Inquisitor. Mm -hmm. And it borrows a lot from both classes to create something that is truly unique and is not a spellcaster, which we'll get into. Um, It is very different from either of those classes, which are both six-level casters in First Edition. But their key ability is Charisma, which I really wasn't expecting for this class. I would have thought Wisdom. I would have thought Wisdom, yeah. Um, It's... Inquisitor style ability that you get at level one is find flaws, which is kind of like an Inquisitor would make a knowledge check to know to use Bane. This character makes a knowledge check and upon success gains an esoteric advantage on the foe. So it's able to exploit a weakness that the foe has, or it can create a weakness, which works very similarly to Bane, which is really cool. You add two plus half your level, I believe, in damage as Mm -hmm. just a weakness and your weapon deals that weakness damage but if your enemy had like say weakness 5 to good your weapon would deal good damage against that enemy in order to exploit that weakness which is very cool they also get implements so this is the side of the character that is a cultist Mm -hmm. right now there are 4 or 5 implements in the playtest and they all grant you different abilities I think the playtest specifically says that they're testing five, but they are going to debut nine, a new class. So you're going to have a lot of options. These are absolute money. (laughs) I'm just saying it right now. This is like where the versatility of this type of character comes in. For instance, the weapon implement gives you attack of opportunity at level one against something that you found flaws with. Yeah. You're okay. Fighter. Cool. Do you want to be like a champion? Take the amulet implement. That gives you the equivalent of a champion's reaction Mm -hmm. to protect your allies and yourself. Or if you want to heal, get the chalice implement. If you want to see beyond the veil, get the lantern implement. They're so cool and flavorful, but they also seem really on par with other class abilities, like really strong and something that excites me about the class because it just makes it feel like you could build this in 10 different ways. Oh, yeah, this has versatility written all over it. I did specifically notate the chalice because I thought that was really interesting. You basically walk into combat with a chalice full of some sort of liquid. I mean, for our purposes, I'm sure it's always going to be full of booze. <laughs> but you could decide whether to sip from that and get a, a small amount of or temporary HP or drain the chalice for healing. <laughs> and 
it, similarly to a lot of other abilities in 2e, if you drain that thing, it's not like you have to refocus to fill it back up. It just fills back up in 10 minutes. It has that 10 minute cutoff thing. And you can still but, sip it. You're, right. you're just sipping dregs at that point, but you can still sip it. You could just drain it once per combat. But yeah, so I mean, maybe it's not an idealized healer build, but you could probably get away with having this be a primary source of out of combat healing. If you just kind of hang out and chug drinks in between. Yeah, uh, yeah, stuff. yeah. absolutely. You can For your party. It is such a cool class in that uh, a lot of the feats deal with being able to do the equivalent of magical things without being a caster. Yes. You get trained in every knowledge mm -hmm. right off the bat. So that's killer. And your knowledge checks scale off of your key ability, charisma, instead of intelligence. Well, I think that's specifically for your fine flaws and esoteric exactly. advantage yes. stuff. So yes. if you're doing out of combat stuff, you will have your regular knowledges. But for the purposes of using those specific abilities, which are arguably the most important because you're going to be needing those in combat, then, yeah, you're going to have beefy knowledge checks. Yeah, which is amazing because mm -hmm. you want to be succeeding on that stuff so you can use your esoteric advantage. Yeah. But you also have scaling damage buffs just from having one of your implements with you mm -hmm. it's like the damage bonus you get to this primarily martial class is juicy yeah it's on par with barbarian style stuff so i do want to touch on this for a moment the flavor of this class is uh, correct that we are not a caster but you're walking into combat completely loaded down with little bits and bobs and stuff so what they describe is you may be carrying like a broken holy symbol, cold iron nails, a chain that was broken and that represents like liberation. They have all these very specific small superstitious things that through the flow of combat, you will pull out the right item to deal with the right enemy. Some of the feats that you would take as this class really lean heavily into that. I believe there's a level one feat that, again, you're not a caster, but you basically get stabilized in a way. There's something called like the root of life. Mm -hmm. So if somebody is dying, you run over with like a flower or a marigold or something, one of these small bits and bobs of stuff, and you place that on their body and they stabilize and then they have an opportunity to stop any persistent damage. That yeah, the persistent them. damage piece is great too. It takes down from 15 to 10. Yeah, like, and that's like the huge source of death in 2E is mm -hmm. you went down and you're taking persistent. Yep. The flavor behind these feats is so good. There's a reaction feat that cancels a misfortune effect that you enact by like throwing salt over your shoulder. It's all these little like wives tales or superstitious type things that are really fun and cool. And I could really, really see somebody, you know, maybe on a podcast or somebody that just likes to put a lot of detail into their actions, really having fun with this class because you can not just say, I attack with my first action, I move with my second action, I attack with my third action. It's like, well, I pull out these cold iron nails and I affix them to my weapon, then I swing, that's my hit, and then I'm gonna throw salt over my shoulder, and then you're talking through all of these weird, cool, esoteric bits and bobs, and it makes for a really flavorful character that would be fun for somebody that really loves to RP, not just outside of combat, but in combat as well. Yeah. 
I think one of the cooler lines of feats here is all of the packed feats you okay. can make. So there's an earlier level feat where you make a pact with the Fae, mm-hmm. and that that like changes your appearance permanently, forever, to your idealized version of yourself. There's a f- pact where you make a pact with the devil. There's a pact where you make a pact with a psychopomp, and they all come with benefits, but they're also huge RP and flavor feats. Like, I made a pact with the devil. Okay, we're going to have to play this out. Yeah. Like, we're going to have to figure this out because there's some logistics behind this feat. But they're very cool feats that are just like in the play test <laughs> that I wasn't expecting for this class. For sure. I will say that I really had difficulty finding something that I did not like about this class. Uh, where Psychic, I had a couple complaints or adjustments. I, I, overall, you heard that I love the class. Uh, Thaumaturge, I didn't have the same reservations. I feel like you could print this right now. I mean, granted, I'm not an expert in the mathematics that go behind some of this stuff, so I don't know if it's overtuned or undertuned or what have you, but it seems good to me. My only thing is, yeah, I also agree that it's weird that this is a charisma build. Again, I don't think we need more charisma classes quite yet. Flesh out some of the other key ability score stuff. Yeah. But, I mean, that's such a minor concern. I really like this. It's cool. Yeah. I think that uh, some of the abilities could potentially make this a better caster than some of the casters. Really? Like, if you combine this with the scroll scriber dedication or whatever it is, you can cast any scroll already with a level one feat, the scroll thaumaturgy feat. You can cast a scroll of any tradition. Uh, That's not bad. (laughs) It's not bad. And being able to, like, write down scrolls with that dedication could make you like the, okay, I have a scroll for that. Like Mm -hmm. almost like the ultimate prepared caster because you can cast from any tradition. Uh, And it would obviously be expensive, but it seems to fit the flavor of this class so well. Like, oh, I just have a scroll for any, like, oh, we're going up against Faye. Like I have, you know, let's make all of our weapons cold iron or whatever. The type of character that this is feels very much like a kind of MacGyvery, like, oh, I have a, I have a solution for any problem. I hate that you brought that up because we are going to see so many Richard Dean Anderson characters for this. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) But that's perfect. That's so good. You're right. I also will say that although we wouldn't have seen this and we definitely didn't in the playtest, I'm very curious to see what both of these classes have in store for their respective dedications. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what do you get from both of them? We'll see. Could be very cool. But overall, I mean... Very, very small concerns or complaints with both of these classes. I really like them both. Dark Archive is a book that I'm very excited for. Is there anything that you wanted to touch on before we moved on to talking about some of this neutral interlude stuff, Griffin? No, I think we can move on. Cool. Well, before we do, I just do want to say that currently, if you're listening within a week or two of this dropping, the playtest is out there. So get your hands on it. Mess around with these classes. See if we're right. See if you like them. If there's anything that needs to get tuned up, if you're better at math than we are, or what have you, the feedback line is open to Paizo. So the future of these classes is in your hands. Go ahead and check it out and see if you can make them better. All right. Well, now that that's behind us, hey, man. We're back on our bullshit, meaning we're off the rails. Wouldn't be HLP if we stayed on the rails. Welcome to the in-betweener for book four and five. The neutral interlude, as we like to call it. All right. Yeah. So 
It's pirate themed. We're bringing back some fan favorites, some new faces. I've been having a lot of fun so far. How have you been enjoying it, Griffin? Oh, I'm loving it. Book four was kind of tough for me to get through, so I'm glad to actually be able to homebrew some stuff. For sure. What's the experience with this compared to the homebrew that you did for the in-betweener from three to four, the Abaddon arc? Abaddon literally happened. Like, there was a bad save, and then it was like, okay, come up with an entire arc for next week. Yep. This one I've been planning for the entirety of book four. So So you've had plenty of time. I've had a lot of time to figure out what I was going to do. Sure. Which is going to make it much better. Although I really enjoyed the Abaddon one. But the Abaddon one was kind of silly in a way. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it was we were like, goofing around. We were having. Fun. It was like a bunch of yeah. yeah. It was a bunch of shit that wasn't really tied to the story at all. Mm-hmm. And this is all very tied to the story. So, yes, I, I think that's indicative in the way that we're calling it the neutral interlude, kind of like the evil interlude, which is directly a part of the story. We're factoring in a whole bunch of lore and, and cool stuff, where it's the Abaddon arc versus the neutral interlude. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of shows that have a bunch of characters in the background will do this kind of stuff in the background mm-hmm. but I know I've been missing like Ikmer and like there's definitely like really good characters in here like it would be a bummer if we just found Lyra and then she like goes off and we don't hear from her again yeah so, that, that would feel like we were doing the character an injustice so I feel like this is a really fun way of actually seeing what's happening in the background mm-hmm. because let's be real it wouldn't be that much fun role-playing out what's going on with the main party right now. <laughs> and you're all on, like, you know, bed rest or whatever, trying to solve your insanities. I will say the Discord is loving Morose Matumbe. Yeah, that's true. Most relatable character. Yeah. But you you have a lesser madness. You're the only one. That that's true. It's not quite as bad as the rest of the party. But, yeah, it's been great to see where Lyra's going and kind of get Emily's perspective on that character. Bringing Tulia's back has been a lot of fun. I know we've had plenty of conversations about Ikmer and specifically, like, Brooks playing Ikmer and having him back on the show. It kind of feels like the old days a little bit. It does. It definitely does. And there's just a difference when Brooks is playing Ikmer. I think that was like that character was really kind of like heart and soul for him. Mm-hmm. And so like listening to him play that character just feels like slipping into an old pair of shoes. For sure. And from my perspective, playing a new character on the show for the first time in as long as I can remember, basically, has been a lot of fun. I know I talked about it on a zone of truth within the last five or 10 of them, that this is the character that has been my backup for the last three years. Yeah. I've been leveling him up since five or six. I think I have considered him like the fifth member of the party because I think of like what he feels and like how he would be interjected into the story and stuff. So it's fun to pull out this character that I've been sitting on for a very long time. Yeah, it was this or you were going to play like Jimberium or something. <laughs> I'd be fine with two, but yeah, it's been cool. It's been a lot of fun. So what people may have noticed already, Griffin, is that some of this stuff does parallel some stuff from the Skull and Shackles AP. It definitely does. I've been a player in that AP, obviously, and mm-hmm. it's a ton of fun. And I think running some of the stuff similarly to how Skulls and Shackles ran it, but upping the difficulty for a level 11 party is a good primer to the shackles. Sure. 
Uh, whereas in Skulls and Shackles, your primary to the shackles is, hey, spend an entire book press ganged onto a ship. Yep. Uh, this is like, hey, let's let's mess around with the Eye of Abendago, this ever-present like huge storm just north of the shackles. Let's introduce some of the like legendary figures in the shackles. And I think that's where I want to go because Moon Isle, mm-hmm. you do not know this, so this is uh, new for you as yep. well is an actual place in the shackles. Is it something that you're reskinning then? It is. Because I made up the name Moon Isle. I know you made up Moon Isle. It is something that, like, the whole island of the undead with the crazy lady on it mm-hmm. is a thing in the shackles. Oh. Yeah, because that's one of the things, and I can't remember if we've talked about this on the show or not, but I've definitely talked about it with Brooks and Emily and car trips over here to record, is that... Although this is in some way, shape, or form like a saw-focused interlude, like we're here doing this because of him, I don't know anything more than anybody else at the table. I basically wrote backstory moments to justify the fact that he was from Sargava and to justify the fact that he was a pirate. Like, I made up Moon Isle. Like, these were all story set pieces that meant nothing beyond get him from point A to point B. Yep, and now I've tied them into Galarian. Yeah, so, which is cool. Uh, yeah, you're, I mean, there's literally lore on this island. Yep. Like, you could, when I tell you the true name of the island, you could, after this interlude is over, literally look it up, and it's there. There's it, not an adventure set there, but it's it's a place in the shackles. Alright, well, I'm not going to try and figure it out. Obviously, I want to be as surprised as everybody else, so let's talk a little bit more about this interlude. So obviously part of this is getting pulled from Skull and Shackles. How much of this is your true homebrew and how much of this is going to be from the AP itself? So in essence, just this intro couple of episodes okay. is is like an upscaled Skull and Shackles. So you have the Free Captain's Regatta is a mm-hmm. thing in book three of the Shackles. You're on a race with other pirates into the Eye of Abendago and you face all of these reefs and all this other stuff. So I reskin that as you guys kind of like trying to skirt the edge of the eye because Vire is far north. And so yes. you have to pass the eye of Abendigo to get to the shackles and then to get to Sargava. So I basically reskinned like the hazards that you would face there and scaled them up. Like Gazra's piss is a thing in the shackles. It's like mm-hmm. this strange current that goes through that iris that you guys faced. And that dragon turtle is a creature from Skulls and Shackles that I scaled up, but it's like, you know, this legendary dragon turtle that's four times as big as a regular dragon turtle and, like, guards that iris. So so let's scale this back for a second. You mentioned that this regatta was taking place in book three of Skull and Shackles, Mm -hmm. and so you would have played through this because you got to book four. Um, What's about the level that we should be at for the regular Skull and Shackles run for this? Uh, The regular Skull and Shackles run, I believe we were level nine. Mm Mm-hmm going through this and you're level 11 so I've scaled it up. What would you do to scale something like this up? So it's mostly like DCs for the for the trickier like mm-hmm. navigating reefs and stuff so I've just scaled those DCs up by like 5 or 10. Depending. So okay so if a, it's a survival check to notice a reef the survival mm-hmm. check is I'm making funny numbers up here 20 so now it's a 25 or a 30. Yeah like I've increased the CR of that lightning elemental by like three mm-hmm. by making it an elder lightning elemental instead of uh, whatever the level is below that which gives it a size increase and then I added the fighter creature template onto it so it could do its bull rushes and all oh, that I didn't crazy pick up stuff, on that yeah that's cool which 
you know, ma- makes it like a CR 11 or 12 encounter, but I think was a fun encounter for you guys to have on the ship. I maintain, and I probably will maintain this for a while, unless something really blows my mind, that the lightning elemental combat was my favorite, most cinematic battle in a very long time that we've done on, on all of our shows. I just really loved that we had Tulia bouncing around with her teleportation all over the place. There's so much movement. It blows Lyra off the side and Ikmer drops his sword and catches her. I feel like that is straight out of the movie. And then you have Dern up in the crow's nest, just like raining artillery hell down on this thing while lightning is flashing and the rain is whipping down. The ship is breaking through the surf. In my mind, this was just the coolest movie moment. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the Skulls and Shackles combats are like this. Yeah. Which I'm glad you guys are getting to experience that because it was really fun to play through. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of the like ship to ship combat and like the even just like having a combat across two ships just felt like when I was playing Skulls and Shackles, like, oh, this is the coolest shit. Oh, like, like yeah. my character who was a captain, like I had huge profession sailor and I like had to spend half the combat like up at the wheel, like trying to keep us straight and like through this storm when this was happening. And like you have Anya and uh, Godfeather like doing that because I knew, you know, Skulls and Shackles party has at least two players that are optimized in profession sailor. Oh, you don't think that uh, like, <laughs> like profession sailor? I, I knew you guys wouldn't have that stuff. So yeah. Anya basically has like a that pirate's hat is a um, headband of uh, vast intelligence mm-hmm. with the profession sailor as the, oh, as sure. the skill yeah. that's in it. So it gives her her level in ranks in profession sailor. Yeah, I think if we were just doing this, like hypothetically, if instead of this being an interlude for the campaign, this was like a season of Link Legacy mm-hmm. and we built characters for ship to ship combat and that kind of stuff. I think it would be really cool to play it closer to how the maybe the book mm-hmm. runs it where you actually are in control of the ship. But I think it makes sense to kind of remove some of the procedural stuff from like a naval combat right. and just let us have cinematic combats on ships. Well, and if we were playing like a pirate campaign, I would expect you guys to know like the naval combat rules, but like we're not. So I, I'm <laughs> yeah. just kind of like, oh, hey, this ship appears next to you. Like it's a ghost ship anyway. Mm-hmm. It like appears next to you and like grappling hook and boards you because I don't want to bog you guys down with something like that when we're only going to be on the boat for like, a couple episodes, you know? So that's a good point. If I've done my calendar work successfully, this Zone of Truth takes place between episode 165 and episode 166, which means we are in a massive cliffhanger where Mm -hmm. somebody could die within a round. Well, we've recorded plenty after this, but uh, tell me a little bit about this combat. Was this also part of the regatta? Uh, No. 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 So the regatta stuff ended with you guys going through that iris. Oh, sure, okay. You came out on the other side and you kind of came out of the storm. This is actually a character in book two of Skulls mm-hmm. and Shackles that I have scaled tremendously um, and made just like a really cool undead creature, which we'll talk about when it's done. I think I mentioned in 166 that we have to take it to the zone of truth because yeah. it's wild. It's it's wild. I mean, it's a, it's a really strong... I think the combat I created opportunities... I really, like, when I'm homebrewing this stuff, I get a better sense of, like, 
the combat in terms of the party. Mm-hmm. And so it's really cool to throw like an undead gunslinging thing at a group where I know like you have Ikmer who's super tanky, but not against touch attacks. Yep. But then I also throw and those troops like can attack Ikmer without having to make a roll. But also that gives Durin a huge opportunity to be doing AOE damage and to show well, off. I like would the, argue not when they have evasion and resistance fire. Well, they have evasion, yes. Um, but it still gives you the opportunity to be doing like splash damage and that kind of stuff. Even you know, they, if I get if damage fail, on them, yeah. then they, they get the time. It's like and really a half big damage, yeah. yeah. Um, Which I I mean, I've teased a little bit about how this character has been built, and I've been a little bit more like maybe expository than I have been with other characters because, you know, he's just getting introduced now at 11. So I'm trying to explain some of these abilities and like where they come from. But yeah, he's definitely built to, instead of doing lots of hits that total up to big damage, do massive swings one at a time. Mm -hmm. And that's been really fun. Yeah. I've been really liking it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this is a character known as Whalebone Pilk. And... He is a spirit that is renowned in the shackles. It's kind of like a haunt. Uh, it's a ship that tracks other ships out in the water for three days before attacking them and sinking their ship. And his whole history is like he's cursed to continue sailing the sea because he caused the death of all of his men. Mm-hmm. And so he needs to collect as many souls as he had, or as many skulls as he had crew members in the hull of his ship before he can be released. This and is the most Pirates of the Caribbean bullshit I've ever heard. I, I think it's something like, I, I'd have to like actually read into his text, but it's something like he needs 10 skulls per person he oh, kills. So he needs like he needs like 500 skulls in the mm-hmm. hull of his ship or something before he's released from this. And God, it's such a creepy ghost ship thing that's following you around i loved it when we were in book two and this was happening i think we fought him like four times or something crazy because because like he keeps coming back he's he's like a haunt in that way so i don't want to fight him four times i've already fought him once and i didn't like it so yeah the, the it's just some player feedback the strategy we adopted was not spending a lot of time on open water mm-hmm. which you guys kind of got the flavor for like hey You know, if you weren't really hurrying, you could maybe island hop and not have to deal with this. But the islands are maybe a little dangerous. The, you know, so it was kind of like a calculated risk. Like, oh, we think we can take this. Yeah. All right. So we're getting a little tight on time and we do need to move into our listener question segment. I just want to make one more point before we move off of this neutral interlude. I am confident we are going to talk about this at least a couple more times on the zone of truth. So I'm not really too worried about moving off of it too quickly, but because we just started, my question is that I want to talk about the party for the neutral interlude, which we've touched on a little bit, but what was the thought process here in bringing all of these old characters back? What are you trying to achieve here with all of these different characters? I told Brooks, when we had to make the choice whether he would continue with Ikmer or not, I told him that Ikmer would still be a part of the story. Sure. We've had a bunch of characters in the background and they have other things going on, but I think there will come a time when the main party is going to need help. Sure. And I think having an idea of what these other characters have been doing in the background without me doing like a 15 minute flashback sequence 
it's a lot cooler. It's yeah. a lot more fun to actually explore what these characters might be doing. And this was just like a tie-in I've had in the works. I mean, when we did this Abaddon arc, I was immediately like, Tulia goes after Nana Opal. Mm -hmm. Like, that's the thing. Yep. And that's the connecting thread there. And then Nana Opal needs to go after Saw. That's her thing. Yep. So, like, there's a bunch of threads, and Ikmer is indebted to Saw. So there's another thing. And so this party came together by virtue of, like, a bunch of connected threads that I just kind of had that I was waiting to use. Mm -hmm. I, I know from my perspective, because I've been playing one character for forever, and my other character that potentially could have been a backup died and is now like kind of the crux of this whole thing. I do need to have a backup character in the event that Matume does not make it through book five or six. Like if he dies in six, it's going to feel really ham fisted if I just throw in another level, whatever we're at 14 or whatever at that yeah. level. So to get something cooking a little bit is definitely going to make for a better listening experience mm -hmm. if and when that does happen. I mean, hopefully it doesn't, but you know, We'll see. He seems to be immortal right now. We've gotten to the point in the story where it doesn't make a ton of sense to keep doing evil interlude stuff mm -hmm. that's five and ten years ago. And it makes more sense to figure out what those evil interlude characters are doing now. Yeah. And now we have Nana Opal in the forefront. Like, we're going to have Ed Turner in the forefront soon. Yeah. But it lends credence to the fact that this is going to be a big world changing deal because it's no surprise that the Whispering Way wants to bring the Whispering Tyrant back. That seems like something that should concern entire governments. Yeah. But right now there's four of us trying to stop that. So like as we start to look at the periphery of some of these other things that are happening and other characters that are getting involved and the werewolf factions have their own things going on, I think it makes the story feel bigger, mm -hmm. even if it really is just four people going up against this cult. It makes it feel like more of a world changing event. Yeah, I like it. I, I think the it was the right party. It feels so good to have two main party members in Ikmer and Lyra, two main party members back. And then like you can bring in a new character and we can bring in like Tulia almost kind of feels like a Freya in the yeah. sense that, you know, she came in later in the game, but is a pretty strong character. We don't have four people all trying to exposition out drop each other. Yeah. And like, I think that's what's really the, the really fun part about this is that it doesn't feel like a side arc mm -hmm. as much as a side arc would feel yeah. if I was just like, hey, all of you make level 11 characters. Yes. And like, we'll maybe drop these back in at some point. It's like two original party members. So this is, it should be considered equally as important as what the main group is doing. Uh, in, uh, in more so considering that we only have one now. Right. <laughs> but yeah. So I actually did have a specific question here. What was your plan for Emily if Lyra died in book four? Or rather the book four finale? Because that wasn't a sure thing when she was going to make it out. Yeah, I think this would have been a scenario where we would have had to discuss like, okay, what's Freya's backup? Mm -hmm. You know, because I was thinking of it in a sense that like Emily and I've been talking like if both of these characters survive, which one do you want to go on with? Sure. And which one do you want to leave as your backup? Because you can't play both. 
and going off of that, okay, well, whichever one you want to use as a backup, I'm interested in using for this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you one or both of you die in this, then we're going to have to think about adding more characters here. So it was it's really just like, a, hey, you know, we're lucky you both survived, but if you hadn't, this would have been an opportunity to introduce another character. Because we were all going into book four's finale knowing that this interlude was coming up, and the other three of us at the table our characters are off screen at that point. Mm-hmm. So we're safe. We know they're coming in, but I know had one or both of Emily's characters died, that would have put us in a really tough situation. We'd have to think on our feet a little bit to yeah. get yeah, something mean, it, going on there. I, I was kind of like, hey, there's a couple intersection points. Mm-hmm. So like, if you want to bring in a character that is somehow tied to Tulia, you can. If you want to bring in a character that's somehow tied to Ikmer, you can. If you want to bring in a character that is somehow tied to the Shackles or to Anya and group, you can. If you want to bring in a character that is somehow tied to Moon Isle, you can. Sure. And so I gave her a lot of options. We didn't have to exercise. Oh, so she was already thinking about this kind of stuff. Okay. Oh, yeah. She had a lot of options if she wanted to bring in a backup in that way. Or she could have gone off with Freya and we could have figured out how... I mean, that would have been difficult with the blind thing, but that may or may not have happened in whatever iteration of this. And so maybe she wanted to go off and then we would have had to figure out a character to bring in with the main party at some point. Good stuff. All right. Well, like I said, there's still plenty to come up, meaning we have plenty to talk about on further installments of the Zone of Truth. But we've got some listener questions that we got to get into. Sure. So first of all, this one comes from Steve Geddes. I'd be interested to hear both of your thoughts on the topic of experience points versus milestone leveling in general. Whether you prefer racing through levels, super slow, or quote-unquote, it depends. So, I can't remember specifically if we've talked about this. I think if it's not been obvious to people listening, we're doing milestone stuff. Yep. And so, the direction I kind of wanted to take this question is, what is your ideal pace for leveling up, Griffin? I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but on all of our recorded games and off-pod games... We're basically all doing Milestone. I don't think anybody's tracking experience. We're doing Milestone, and I think that's because at least my ideal pace is plot point driven. Yes. And you guys all know that going in. Like, you can all be pretty damn assured. Like, when you beat what is considered the big bad of a book, you're going to level up. Yeah. Um, And I like to tie them to Milestones mid-book when I can. Mm -hmm. So I think what you guys level up after the uh, Color Out of Space... Or something too, um, or like just before it, like when you beat Father Voltero, uh, it was like a mini boss that you had leveled up after as well. That may or may not have suited the experience, but it it like pushed you to ten. Yeah, I specifically can't remember, but what I will say is that it would feel really weird if we beat him and then fought the Hounds of Tindalos and leveled up after right, that. Like, right, that feels much less deserved. Mm-hmm. And so I like to put them at points like that. Like, mm-hmm. oh, you level up after like a really good point in the trial or you level up at like, you know, when you got this really good piece of evidence in book two or you level up after you beat like one of the spirit pillars in, in book one of the prison, right? It feels like an excellent reward. There's a difference between, all right, you hit and you have the last killing blow against Dr. Viv. We'll see you next week. You hit and you have the last killing blow against Dr. Viv. 
and you all level up and we'll see you next week and everyone goes wild yeah. like it feels like such a reward and it is really validating to the people that achieve those things yeah and i think some of it too is like the pacing is really good when you can it, obviously this doesn't happen all the time but when you can hit a level up and then have like a period of downtime mm -hmm. that allows for some really good role play and explaining the level up if you want to I think our, our friends at Southern Town Foolery do a really good job of that. They will hit level ups and then spend a lot of time having like characters play out how their level ups actually manifest. Mm -hmm. And I really like that in bringing that style of thought into our game where, yes, you have the time to not only talk about the new abilities, but like explain how they manifest themselves. I know we talk about this show less on Zone of Truth, but... There was a, a level up that we hit in Bestow Curse, and we all had an opportunity to talk about how those. I mean, I think that was like happen. our strongest level. Level. Yeah. I mean, that was. I don't want to talk too much about mm -hmm. it, but like that was a fucking level up. Yes. Like that was a lot of shit happening. Chunk of the episode, yeah, yeah, for that, and I think, um, I think that works really well because there's a period of somewhat downtime or a period of like separation with the group. Now, now, what I will also say on this topic is that I do feel that you need to match the pacing of your game to your level ups. Right now, we are playing a game off podcast that Eric is running, our good buddy, Ten Lawn Gnomes, Dragon's Demand, where we are basically like power leveling up. We're almost leveling up once a session. I mean, we've been and playing like eight eight hour sessions that's true but it's also a 64 page module that takes you from one to like seven yeah like, so you're, very you're leveling up once every 10 pages of the book but so the point i'm trying to make is that that pace feels very appropriate and exciting for like an off pod dungeon delver type of game mm-hmm but might not be appropriate for something like a podcast or a full-blown AP. Yeah. On the other end of the spectrum is your big chunk of Starfinder APs that only take you to level 12. That is far too slow. So yeah, it definitely feels slow, but I feel like those play a bit faster than six books of a Pathfinder AP. You're probably not wrong about that, but I just wish they went a couple levels higher. So I, I think that you do need to match it to what you're actually trying to achieve. If you're trying to like have fun on weekends and like power level characters and blow through dungeons, yeah, level up faster. It makes your characters feel fun and powerful. Yeah, ex I mean, but, I think experience-based leveling yeah. is fine when you're doing a dungeon crawl. I yeah. think I, that makes it feel a little bit more video gamey, but honestly, like a dungeon crawl is basically like a tabletop strategy game anyway. So I feel like experience is appropriate for that. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's like the... Hey, let's like check all the rooms. Like let's yeah. let's level up. We want to get a level up tonight. Let's check the whole floor before we move on. Uh, and that that's fine and that's a that's a completely valid style of play. I just think for a really storytelling heavy thing like a podcast mm -hmm. specifically, but if you play your sessions very storytelling style, I think the milestone level ups just work a little bit better. 100%, yeah. So I think we're pretty much on the same page. So let's move on to our next question. This comes from Thomas. Haley Stephen Griff. Oh, Haley's not here. Uh, you put out a staggering amount of content each week with HLP Productions. How much of your time is devoted to podcasting? How do you manage your time and avoid burnout? Oof, a lot of time devoted to it. Yeah, a lot of time that probably you don't 
think about yeah, I mean, as a listener. I'll just say for a Bestow Curse episode, it's at least uh, it's at least six hours of editing. Yeah. I mean, irrespective of that, anytime that we talk about a level up, anytime that we talk about getting new spells or like going shopping, that is a significant amount of homework that we're doing. We're looking at items. We're looking at abilities. I mean, we like I said, we recently leveled up on Bestow Curse and we had an opportunity with the free archetype system to get a free archetype. Well, you bet your ass that the four of us players each individually had to research like every archetype to see what fits the best. Yeah. And, you know, going off of that, it's like, hey, we really want to wait for Secrets of Magic. Mm -hmm. Okay, me as the GM, I have to prep several sessions that can get us still playing this story that you should have leveled up at episode yep. seven when you beat Gadrian Lamb, right? And so I have to build that in and make sure I'm not overwhelming you by level and make sure I'm taking that into consideration with book one going forward. And so there's like on both ends of that just a a pretty ridiculous amount of prep to make the stories make sense. Yeah, so even just outside of recording and editing, there's a lot of stuff that happens that just makes the show possible. Yeah, it's a lot of time. Yeah, I mean, the prep work, I think if you're a GM of anything, think about the prep you do and then uh, think about the prep you would have to do if you were going to turn that into a story that thousands of people listen to. And also think about how that would change if you were going to completely homebrew it and make it tie into things like I'm making references to stuff that we haven't referenced in a year and a half, you know? But then think about what if the cables for your microphone started making weird noises and then you need to make, you have to spend a bunch of time researching the right cables to get. Yep. And then think <laughs> about like, if you wanted to start live streaming stuff, all the research that you have to do to get the right cameras. And this is a lot of stuff that you've done, Griffin, and the rest of us haven't done quite as much of, but there's a lot of stuff in the actual just production of the show that has nothing to do with the story that we have to do and that takes up lots of time yeah and just the setup and breakdown of various sets and mm -hmm. oh yeah every time that we're recording a live zone of truth we have to completely reset up your office so that we can stream that and, and then like, when would we're it done be we have nice? to take it back down <laughs> would it be nice if we had like a permanent setup yeah it would be nice it would also be like thousands of dollars a year to rent a space or something that we just can't we can't feasibly do because yeah, we, we don't make that. We don't make any money on this show. We put it all back into the show. I've been on this show for over three years, and I have not made a dollar off. Of it. I mean, Which I'm is, like, I mean, that's not that's not why we do the right, show, right. but like, you know, yeah. I'm like thousands of dollars in the hole, even though we make <laughs> a grand a month or whatever. Um, which you know is is not why we're into this, but it's certainly like you said, like all the research that goes into that is is a piece of it all of the social media that we do to promote the show is a part of it um you know i just i it took me several hours the other day just to like figure out the right way and right places to post some stuff on reddit just to get like you know 25 upvotes or whatever like we're just trying to like spread the show to areas that uh we maybe haven't spread it in the past and if you think about what you have to do to be successful on social media 
it's at least a post a day on every social media platform you're on. And mm-hmm. if you think about c- compiling the pictures for every episode when we post those and thinking of the drinking rules for every episode, because that's something we've been doing for 100, <laughs> 150 plus episodes, it's uh, it's work. It's certainly work. I'd say, like, as a team, we probably put in almost 30 hours of work a week on this show, just as a, as a total yeah, group. That seems fair. Across, across really everybody, I think it's about 30 hours a week. Like, I think if it was a single person, it would almost be a full-time job. So how do you avoid burnout, Griffin? Just having fun with it, doing stuff like this. I don't really care if you as fans don't like this interlude we're about to go on. I, If you want me to keep doing Hideous Laughter Podcast, you just have to let me do it. Because I hated book four. I hated it. Mm-hmm. And I had no fun doing it. The only fun I had was creating wacky NPCs in book four. I really didn't want to run book four. Mm-hmm. And so you have to let me do something that I actually want to run. So, like, if you don't like it, fuck you, I don't care, I guess. is it, Like, skip it and wait for book five, I guess. But, like, I'm doing it because I don't want to get burnt out and just say I don't want to do this anymore. I, I agree, and that's kind of the attitude that you have to have when you're our level in our space, is that, like, we are basically doing this because we like doing it and sharing it with people. And if people don't appreciate that, you just can't afford to care right. what they think. Like, I'm not going to get beat up if, like, somebody on our Discord or Twitter or whatever, like, tries to tell me that Twilight is bad. Like, I am having fun, like, doing things that are fun. Like, if you don't like it, I legitimately could not care less. We're doing this show because it's a good time. Yeah. And I guess that's also something that helps me from getting burnout is to be a little goofy and on Link Legacy have meme characters and really get into weird fandoms like the Twilight thing that I've been on a kick with lately. Like just to like get goofy with the community and make jokes and like not take this so seriously, even though that like we pour our heart and souls into these characters and some of the things that happen you can't get bogged down with that or else it's just gonna like really tear you up because we're all working a lot too and not for the podcast like yeah we all have, have full time careers that are also a lot of time mm-hmm. I, Brooks and Haley get up at like four or five in the morning or whatever to get to their job yeah it's like and then we'll record till 11 30 at night like, yeah yeah, I mean, it, it, it takes more weekends out of us than not, I would say. And like, we've tried to kind of spread that out or chunk it up. But I guess part of it is like, you got to think like, as a fan, I would just, you know, appreciate the thought that this takes so much time out of us. When you ask us to do extra stuff, like just know if we say no, it's not a slight against you. Mm-hmm. The sheer amount of work that we're doing right now is absolutely more than than like if I was not doing this podcast, I would probably uh, I would have five more nights a week. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I have time for about three more hobbies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it just we could actually go to the bars or something. Like there, there's just a lot of stuff that I think you know we love doing this, so we do it. But there's certainly a lot of like sacrifice to to put this out and and i don't feel like i'm missing out on anything 
I certainly don't feel that way. But yeah, just like, I think I agree with you, Griffin, that like, yeah, that there's that notion that like, if there's like a movie night happening on our Discord and I don't join and I just instead sit in my apartment by myself drinking beers and playing Battlefront 2, like I needed that night to decompress. Yeah, like, so like I, I just... That's I, what I'm going to do. I don't want to like... <laughs> I, I just want to do something for me for once, yeah. which isn't selfish at this point. It's just, it is what it is. Yeah. You it's know, if, if we were just doing one show, yeah, sure. Fine. But now that it's expanded to what it is, it's really difficult to do that kind of stuff, especially without like pre-planning. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounded like a lot, but a lot of we, time, <laughs> roughly 30 hours a week, I would say lots of time. We avoid burnout by taking time for ourselves when we can. And like I've said a billion times on the zone of truth, we're all like actually best friends. So this doesn't feel like work. So yeah, it's, like it's really all of the other stuff that we just discussed that feels like work. It's not playing the games. Playing the games is absolutely fun as hell, Yeah, which is why we still do it. Because we said we would stop doing it if it wasn't fun. And we're still doing it. So. And three years later, by the way, it is three years later. And I think we just hit 300,000 downloads today. Can you believe that? Today? Like today. Hell yeah. yeah. Rock and roll, man. It has been three years, 300,000 downloads. So, I mean, that puts into perspective. A lot of hard work, but like it's really cool. Yeah. To be able to reach that many people. People all over the globe. Yeah. Like there have been people that have listened to our show in Russia and China and Brazil and there are people that have listened to our show in Africa. I don't I've met I don't know, I could probably count the number of people that I've met from actually Africa on two hands. Like, yeah. That people are listening to our show on that continent is blows my mind yeah it's wild but i think i think what i want to like leave with is like this isn't like a cautionary tale it's definitely like if this is something that you're interested in doing by the way like go for it it takes a lot of work but it's something that none of us regret doing so you know use that as an endorsement that like hey if this is something if you want to share your game or your story through podcasting or streaming or whatever like it's a worthwhile endeavor even though it does take a lot of work. We've met some of the coolest people doing this show. Yeah, we never would have met. Yeah, it's been so rewarding, even though like we haven't seen any real money from it. But like, we're it doesn't matter. Yeah, I don't care. Like I said, we all have jobs. <laughs> we're okay. We're okay. All right, so let's go down on a, a little bit more positive note. This question comes from Twisted Enigma. This is actually a question from about a year ago, but is relevant again today. Okay. With Halloween coming up, what are you dressing up as? And what is your favorite Halloween costume you've ever worn? That's a good one. So for the last few years, I have dressed up as Saw every year for Halloween. Yeah. I'm changing that up this year. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I'm going to dress up as my Linked Legacy Season 3 character, Otago. Do you have a blue dress? Well, I'm, I'm going to gender bent it. So I oh, will Sorry, be... illegal. <laughs> yep. You have to go in the dress. So, uh... If you guys want to know why I think that's very fun, you should listen to episode five of season three of Link Legacy. But I'm going to gender bend that uh, that character and uh, wear that. What do you got planned, Griffin? I think, like, I really want to wear the uh, the cosplay that I have had for the It's Always Frosty and Irisen. You should just do that. It was uh, very good. I really want to wear that again, so I probably will. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think my favorite costume of all time was Usador. 
I mean, that Halloween, we still talk about it. That, that Halloween was so much fun. That's uh, also to, my answer to, to the second part. The blue. There was, I don't think we've talked about it on this show, but there was a Halloween where we dressed up as characters from Hello from the Magic Tavern, a podcast that most of us listen to. You were Usador the Blue, Haley was Flower, and I was Chunt. And the three of us were just getting, I mean, we were with a big group of people, but the three of us were like walking through bars in Columbus with fake microphones, (laughs) interviewing people, (laughs) eating nuts by dumpsters. uh, And a pocket full of nuts and a pocket full of rocks, and you never knew what you were going to (laughs) get. Yep. There were many people that they would ask you what you were, and you're clearly just a wizard. Right. They were, right. They were expecting you to say wizard, and then you... Like, like Dumbledore or something. And then you launched into, like, the 12 names Usador has, and by the third one, they're like, okay, cool, man. <laughs> it was I did great. it every time. I did it every time someone asked. Because you had the nasty beard, too, that was also the night... Filled with tequila. <laughs> took a shot of tequila through a straw. Yep. Oh boy. Good times. Yeah. Good times. This is a great costume. There's some photos of that out there. They're they're pretty good. That was a very fun night. Yeah, that was good. All right, well, on that note, this has been the Zone of Truth. Griffin, you did uh, make your will save. It's been good. I always enjoy these little intimate affairs. Yeah. But uh she get a like like a fireplace going. Ooh. That would be nice. Maybe that's what I'll put in as the sound. Just like the crackling of a fireplace. There's like sort of a pseudo fireplace in this room. Yeah. Maybe turn it into a real one again. Oh yeah, that'll work out well. It's totally up to code. Oh, absolutely. I think it's pretty illegal to have a uh, second floor fireplace in your house these days. Well, what the fire marshals of Columbus don't know won't hurt them. You're absolutely right. All right, we'll see you next time. Bring it home, Griffin. Finish your drinks. We'll see you in two weeks. Later.